good evening. Hey, thanks for adjusting tonight. Um, uh, we are still working out our heating issues, and so uh, we're in the process of that. And Lucinda is doing amazing, and I'm thankful for her. So this geothermal nuclear system that we have, uh, wasn't that a geothermal nuclear war? Wasn't that a movie somewhere? That's before your time. You're too young. Uh, yeah. Um, but um, this system is it's it's needing a little TLC, and uh, so but we're we're on it. So uh, appreciate Lucinda. I do have copies of other nights. If you need those, we have uh, copies of week one, week two. Um, when I printed these, I pushed print uh, for each one of them, but the but one came out on cardstock, and I have no idea why. And so I just decided to. We'll just leave it, and so I didn't kill another tree. So you got card stock on week two. So if you want a card stock copy of week two, I got some. Uh, the finish. Hey, hey, you gotta do some work, Mark. It's time to do some work, buddy. Uh, uh, hey, uh, I am so grateful uh, for the stories we're hearing. Like I'm hearing stories of, uh, you know. I've never studied the Bible like this before. I've never spent so much time in the Word like this before. And, and I am so very grateful. Let's pray, and then we'll get started, and then we'll uh, um, jump into tonight. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the opportunity to study. I thank you for the push to know your Word and to understand it. And I, I know that you've commanded us to understand your will understand your word. So would you speak tonight and, and just continue to lead us? I thank you for Rob and the blessing he is to our church and to, to me and, and to so many. So Lord, lead us today. We love you. We need you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, uh, but, but tonight, is, it, it's, this, this class is so very important for us because it is moving us to engage the word uh, and, and you know, I was just reflecting on Sunday, as we were, as we've been in the book of Samuel and thinking about uh, the Samuel, First Samuel three one talks about the the word of the Lord was rare in those days. That that's a fascinating idea, for God's word to be rare. We honestly don't know what that's like. Because God's given us His Word. I mean, I mean, honestly, the Bible is still the best-selling book in the history of the world. And yet, it's on so many shelves, and it's not opened. I, I was um, listening to a sermon one uh, not too long ago, and uh, it was a... Um, the preacher was saying that uh, his congregation was saying, you need to preach shorter. You preach too long. And he goes, you know, he goes, um, most of you, the only time you're in the Word is when you hear me preach. So that's like 50 minutes. I think he preached like 55 minutes. So you're we're like, Rob and I only preach like 45. Um, uh, so, um, but, but he said, okay, so if I'm the only, if statistics are right and you're only in the Word when you hear me preach, um, 
that's not very much. It's not very much. And, and, and so you ought to say, boy, I need to preach uh, longer. Or maybe I'll preach shorter if you get in the word more. You know? uh, and, but it was just a, a really great reminder of, of how we need to be in the word, and most people aren't. And, and it's my prayer that, that we get more confident in, in being in the Word. And when we're in the Word, we're in the Word correctly. We're in the Word in a, in a we're able to interpret it correctly, understand it correctly. Because we need the Word of God in our lives. And I've thought about this. And, and, and Sunday, if you were in the first service, I, I transposed some numbers on, on myself. And, and so I apologize. I, I I, I got it right for the second service, which is the blessing of getting to preach twice. Because um, my wife is in the first one, and she says, hey, that's wrong. And so she corrects me every week. And so, no, not really. She's, she's a blessing. <clears throat> but um, in, in Deuteronomy 32, verses 46 and 47, think about this. This was right before Moses died. And you remember, Moses couldn't go into the promised land. Remember? Because he had disobeyed the Lord, and that was part of the consequences. Moses, you're not going to get to go. So, but he was, he had given, God had given the law through Moses. And, and, and the word of God had come through Moses. And, and in verse, verses 46 and 47, um, Moses had just finished uh, reciting this song in the hearing of all the people. There was this huge song in, in, in uh, Deuteronomy 32, and it's a rich song. And, and then he says in verse 46, uh, he said to them, take heart. If you, if you have your Bibles, look at, at Deuteronomy 32. I'll give you a second to turn there. Deuteronomy 32, starting in verse 46. So you know this is the end of the Pentateuch end of the law that, that God had given his people, Moses is about to, his death is about to be foretold. And in verse 46, Moses said to them, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. And then it says, Verse 47, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. And, and I loved, uh, this, this is such a, a truth for us. God's word is no empty word for us. And we have it. God allowed us to have it in black and white, and in some of your Bibles, red letters, right? Um, and it's not empty words for us. In fact, it's, our, it's, it's life to us. And I think about the times. And I, I, can, I, can, I just sat down today, and in my, in, even in my quiet time, just thought of the moments that God's Word has been life to me. Um, when I was praying about, I wanted to marry Robin, and, and she broke up with me. 
and and one of the things that in our journey of I, I figured out I wanted to marry her way before she thought she wanted to marry me, and um, and uh, you know one time right after Robin and I broke up, I picked up a hitchhiker, and uh, and Robin and I had just broken up. I pick up this hitchhiker in Oklahoma City, and he needed a ride to the Jesus House, and so I was like going to witness to him. I, I witnessed to him, and he goes, you know, a man named John Shelton led me to the Lord. I was like, oh, really? His granddaughter just broke up with me. <laughs> John Shelton's Robin's grandpa. I'm like, Dad, get him. I, I, I pick up a hitchhiker, and John Shelton led, led him to Christ. I didn't get to leave the Lord. And um, so this guy was like, it's okay, man. Yeah, I bet, it's, I bet maybe you'll get back together. <laughs> and I was like, thanks, Mr. Homeless guy. Um, it was just really funny. Um, but, but I think back of that time, one of the things that both Robin and I did, we started studying, experiencing God. And I started getting into the Word. And God's Word was life to me. I think about the call to ministry, the times when, when I was like, Lord, I, I don't know what to do. And God's Word would give me direction. God's Spirit would strengthen me through the Word. I think about the times of loss in my life. The times that I remember as a young youth minister being catapulted in front of our entire city, Oklahoma City, and, 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 and I'm having to preach Justin Sullivan's funeral, going, God, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And, and God would, you know, you know how God used his word during that time? It was such a tragedy in my life, and I had just memorized 1 Peter chapter 1. And here I am facing ultimate questions. God, why are you doing this? Questions of loss, questions of, of where are you, questions of doubt. God, how can this be your plan? And I had just finished memorizing 1 Peter 1, which says this about trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, though, though refined by the fire, that it may, your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I had just memorized that passage of Scripture when Justin Sullivan died. And I was like, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust that this trial has come. Um. And then it goes on, and it talks about this inheritance. Uh, um, let me just try to quote it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade and kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power. Until, um, until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. You may have to suffer grief through all kinds of trials. These have come. Here I was in the midst of grief. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, though refined by the fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
I just memorized that. And here I was in the midst of grief. And I'm in all kinds of trials. And let me tell you something. Last week, last Thursday, it was last Thursday, I drive to Oklahoma City and I stood at a banquet for the ambassador baseball team about to start year 13. 13 years, baseball teams have traveled the country sharing the gospel on and off a baseball field as a result of Justin's death. And I'll tell you what, God's word was life to me as I had memorized it in that moment, as I'd been in it in that moment, though I didn't understand. And, and I, I said Thursday night, I'm not sure God's glory is completely revealed at this time because I think God's still writing a story that's a beautiful story. But it's the Word of God. The Word of God is life. And so I want us to keep that in mind as we study, as we learn to study, as we, as we get into the weeds. I mean, honestly, the goal of this study is to get in the weeds of studying the Bible. So let's embrace it. Let's figure out tonight. There's highlighters on your table. Uh, there's, uh, we're going we're gonna to dig into the weeds of breaking this down, of, and I loved what Rob said, becoming excellent observers of the Word of God because it's life to us. So let's embrace it. Let's turn our face to this, and, um, and let's dig in. All right, Rob, you ready? Thank you very much. Give Rob a hand. Grateful for this young man. No hands. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Check one, two, one, two, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Perfect. All right. Sorry, Creighton. <laughs> I'm going to put it over here. All right. So let me move this a little bit. As we get going uh, this evening, I have two things to give away, as is my part of my ministry, and we've been doing this in this series, and we'll, we'll, we'll give something really cool away next week. But do we have anybody in here who has a passion for discipling young folks, college-age students? Nobody. No one cares about them. Londa. Londa wins. Will someone give that to Londa? That is Focus on the Family, True You, uh, is the Bible Reliable Study. It's really an incredible DVD-driven study. Um, I hope that blesses somebody. And then the first person that I see a hand raise gets this. Oh, Patrick, did you win last week? All right, let's give this to Patrick. You don't have to. Patrick, if you want it, you can come up here. Otherwise, Stacy will have to walk all the way back there. <laughs> she has to, she'll get half of it if she does. <laughs> this is Understanding Scripture, um, an incredible overview of the Bible's origin, reliability, and meaning, uh, and got some, lots of essays by different scholars, and an incredible resource. I hope that blesses you as well. Let's get started uh, tonight. We are in step three, and uh, it's a little bit different tonight. Hard for me to see as we go here. I've got this giant whiteboard. Uh, let me move this a little bit here. So as we're getting into, um, is it working, Clayton? I'm pushing the button, but nothing's happening. 
not sure what's happening. We got fresh batteries. Maybe, maybe I uh, raise my hand, and every time I raise my hand, you hit the forward button. <laughs> my shoulder will be toast. I'm not sure. That's okay. While we work on that, we'll go to the board for a second. So who did their book chart for, yeah, a couple people. Who did First John? Who book charted First John? Was it hard? Yes, I think we can all agree that was difficult. Uh, I gave you guys a little bit of a heads up that it was going to be difficult. Um, I told you that it is one of those books that really, really is not set in a, a style that is easily broken up and categorized. John repeats himself, he says some things, and then he'll change his mind, you know, he'll, he'll be going this direction, then he comes back over here and says this again, then he goes another direction. And it's really hard to break down uh, any one uh, idea or, or, or to summarize any one of the chapters. And this is actually what my study Bible says on 1 John. It says the rhetoric of 1 John is challenging says, John rarely sustains a clear line of argument for more than a few lines or verses. He wanders from subject to subject, unencumbered by any discernible outline. Yet, if he has no plan, he does follow a pattern. After leaving a subject, he often returns to it. And, and, and that's probably what you picked up on. You're like, okay, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get this big picture idea, and he doesn't seem to keep a thought for very long. He says this thing, and he's running along, and then he's like, no, I want to go back and visit something else, and now I want to come back over here. So I know that it was very challenging for you, and for those of you who did it, man, congratulations. Uh, how many of you have never done anything like that before? Raise your hand. So most of us, that's awesome, all right? I hope that you take that, that discipline, and do many other books. Don't let it just be this one, and I chose a hard one for you. Um, if you can do First John, if you can dig into the weeds in First John, Many of the other narratives will be so much easier. And many people gave me a hard time at Calvary when I first taught this class because I did Jonah. And they're like, you picked an easy one. Did you for yourself? That's right, I did. Yeah. So uh, it's not my first time, right? So let me do a couple of things real quick. When we're talking about uh, the Bible, uh, there is something that we really need to be aware of. And there is something called a translation philosophy. And so that's going to become important this week as we get into step three and start to talk about the immediate context. And the immediate context uh, is where we dig down really deep into the words themselves, the sentences, and the paragraph. We're not going to go very much further than that. Last week we talked about the circles of context, um, which we'd say, okay, at the bullseye is really that word or sentence, then you got the immediate context, then you zoom out a little bit further, and you could say, what about the book? Uh, and then the book also has uh, another ring you could go out from there and say, what, what, what's this author? Who's this author? Do they have any more writings? Uh, and then is this Old Testament? Is this New Testament? And then what is the place of this book? What is the purpose of this book in the entire Bible? If we took that book out of the Bible, what would we be missing? And so we try to think through that, that idea, but every time we get into the weeds and start to do word studies or really start to dig into a specific passage, we first have to take into consideration that every single Bible 
there has been a translation philosophy. If you have a study Bible, more than likely at the beginning of your study Bible, it will explain the translation philosophy of that Bible. There are many different translations, as many of you already know. Uh, this, this is my favorite translation, but actually in the evenings I read out of an NASB. Right now I preach and study mostly out of the ESV, but I will also read, thank you Clayton, in the evenings out of an NASB. Uh, my wife has an NIV and I'm still praying for her. Just kidding, babe. It's great, too. And I actually have several NIVs, and I read them as well uh, in desperate situations. But ESV, (laughs) sorry, guys. ESV is my favorite, uh, but it is not the only one that has the corner on the market, right? Lots of folks like the King James Version, the New King James Version. Uh, There's the RSV, NASB. Uh, uh, there's, There's so many different translations. But you have to keep in mind that there is a difference between them all, and it comes from the translation philosophy. So if we drew a line like this, on the far left, we'll say dynamic. Dynamic equivalency is more of that thought for thought. And it's probably hard for you to see my little marker, and I apologize. And then there's what's called a formal equivalency, and that's more the word for word. And the thing you have to keep in mind is when we are reading our Bibles, every one of us has to rely on somebody else for what we're reading. Because very few of us in this room, myself included, can just pick up the Nestle and Allen 28th edition New Testament Greek and go to town, right? Many of us can't do that. What do we have to rely on? We have to rely on somebody else who took and translated the original language into English so that we can read it. Well, during that process, they have to make decisions. Because there isn't always a word-for-word equivalency and this word in Greek can mean many different things, and so to try to take it from this language to the receptive language of English, there's got to be decisions made, and so they'll have a committee of theologians and scholars in the languages who will talk about how we're going to translate this into English and still preserve the Word of God in a, in a sense. And so what we have to think of is the dynamic thought for thought is that we're going to say we're going to take more of the work upon ourselves to not only translate this as far as its uh, syntax and the, and the syntax structure and what the words are, but we're really going to try to give you a good idea of what the author was getting at. What did the author mean? What were they trying to convey? Because if we do uh, just a solid formal word for word, there may be some confusion here when you read it in English. All right. So uh, what we have to think of is that just because it's dynamic or thought for thought doesn't mean that that is a bad thing. But it does mean that a lot of the interpretive work has already been done for you, all right? So the books, or excuse me, the translations that would fall more on the left over here, um, you're going to get like the New Living translation. Uh, there's, there's many other NIVs over here somewhere as well. Further over, you're going to get NASB, ESV, King James, New King James, they're going to be all more further this, this direction. 
but none of them are truly going to be just perfectly word for word. Um, and if you ever look at a uh, interlinear, you, when they have the Greek and, and the English on top of each other, right, you'll see some weird stuff, and stuff is over here and backwards and forward. And you just, it's just different. Why? Because it's not English, so there's got to be some work there. So as we get into this, I want you to have in your mind that there is always a translation philosophy, and it's important for you to know what the translation philosophy of the translation you're using uh, subscribes to. So if you don't know what that is already, I highly recommend uh, that you take a look at that uh, this week. So recap from step one, I'm going to go through this super quick. Right, we talked about identifying the literary genre, recognize the different roles. So there's, there's a lot that goes into this. There's many different genres, and we read them all according to their genre's rules. Then we talked about authorial intent, reader response versus the authorial, uh, you know, who gets to control the meaning. We say the author gets to control the meaning, and it's our job to read what the author was trying to communicate. And we, ha we also talked about being aware of what we bring to the text that we bring assumptions, we bring presuppositions to the text, we bring our own theology to the text, we've got to be aware of that. And we talked about becoming an expert observer, and we'll always continue to reemphasize this, slow down, hold off on interpretation and application and meaning. Why? Because we've got to learn to understand first what the text says before you try to understand what the text means or you try to apply it. Then in, in step two, we talk about in identifying the intrinsic concept or the main idea identify where the main idea begins and ends, and that means that we can't just pick a passage, a, a sentence somewhere in the Bible, and start there. We've got to take an idea of saying, okay, if I read this and it doesn't quite make sense, then I've probably got to go back further up to see where that idea truly begins, and where does that idea end? And now I'm starting to get an idea of what in the world uh, is the general context, if you will. We said pay attention to logical flow, and we also brought up the idea of book charting to make a visual summary of the passage or book. And we looked at Jonah, right? But what we were trying to do was take a look at the idea, the plot, or the character development that was in there. And once again, become an expert observer. All right? So now, what we're going to do is I want to hear just a little bit about book charting. So I want to follow up on your book charting. Does anybody have their book chart with them? Can you bring it? Stacy's got it. Mark says he didn't do it. Anybody got one that they, I, I won't call on you. Kit's got one. We've got several people. How many of them, how many of you feel like it's still a work in progress, right? Yeah, most of us. Excellent. If you haven't finished it, that's okay. Continue it. Continue to struggle with it. Continue to wrestle with it. Um, I will encourage you, don't be defeated if this process was difficult for you. This was the picture of what I did for Jonah. And as you can see, I had columns for each chapter, so four columns because there are four chapters. And I chose to pay attention to different types of verbs, if you will. And so I had these verb categories for like obedience, uh, disobedience, human response, divine call, divine mercy. And I looked for those things in each one of those uh, chapters. And then I would summarize each chapter with a one word, uh, excuse me, with a one sentence summary. Uh, and then at the end of it, what I wanted to be able to do was zoom back out and then say, can I in one sentence define the purpose of this book? Why is this here? And as you can read up there, it's pretty small, but the purpose of Jonah that I saw was to show the compassion of God who shows mercy to both Jonah the rebellious prophet 
and to the Ninevite Gentiles he calls to repentance. I believe that that's why Jonah, the book of Jonah, is in the Bible. There's a lot more to see there, but I think that that's a decent summary to say, why is this book even here? Well, it tells us about the mercy of God with, with Jonah himself, but then also it's a beautiful image of God being merciful to these Gentile Ninevites in the Old Testament, right? Such a beautiful image, all right? Now, here's an uh, image of a student's uh, book chart that they produced. They chose to go the other direction, and so the, the rows were the chapters. And then if you went top to bottom on the left column, that was the big idea. So that student said, I want to see what the big idea is in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, all in the left column. And then there was this uh, contrasting uh, or cooperating uh, themes in the second column. And so they chose to do it like that with some color coding. So I'm going to tell you, it doesn't matter what it looks like. Uh, Jonathan Watts, I think his is, his, uh, he took his to Kinko and got it printed out and it's laminated and, and maybe you'll get, a, get that thing framed, right? So if you want to see another idea, Jonathan did his at, at Calvary last semester and he brought it with him this evening as well. So here's a, a zoomed in view of that with the verses thrown up there. So just, just for an example for you, to, to keep in mind that there's no right or wrong way to do this, um, however you want to do this, the idea is to dig into the word, slow down, mine it, look for themes, look for repeated ideas, look for uh, just what in the world was God trying to communicate with this book, all right? So now we're going to talk about step three. What are we going to do tonight? Well, this is about the immediate context, and so we're going to make historical observations, and then we're really going to dig into the literary context level two, which is the immediate context, all right? So I want to start with this uh, little diagram here. Uh, so what we have to recognize is that when God communicated his word, he communicated it to a first order audience. You and I are not the first order audience. Uh, God had a specific people that he was communicating to when this word was written. That doesn't mean this isn't for us. It doesn't mean that it wasn't written for us, but it wasn't written to us primarily. I know that's kind of a weird distinction to make, but there's a first order audience. So when, when the letter of Paul was received by the church, and they got it, and they stood up, and they read it, they didn't read it as if, hey, this has nothing to do with us, guys. This has something to do with the 21st century church, but let's see what it says anyways. No, they're like, Paul, we know Paul, we love Paul. What did Paul say? He wrote it to us. So one person would get up in front of the church and read the whole thing to them. Why? Because it was written to them. They are the first order audience. And so we've got to remind ourselves that we are not the first order audience. And in order to understand the scripture and apply it to us today, we have to first understand what it meant back then. So this little diagram that I've shown, uh, that I got shown up here, um, you can see that on the left side is this concept of their town. And then on the right side is this idea of our town, right? So I, I, I adapted this, I drew this myself, but I adapted the idea. Jonathan, I think you brought the textbook. Um, Grasping God's Word, it's an incredible, incredible book that goes into a lot of detail into this, um, and that's where I got this idea from. Uh, but the idea is that there is a town over here that was the original audience, and then there's a town here, us, 
and we've got to figure out how we cross this bridge and what's called the principalizing bridge, and we're not going to spend a ton of time on that tonight. We will spend more time on that next week, but I want to expose you to it tonight. And so every one of you uh, should have at least in your minds that there's a difference between their town and our town. And the first question, though, that I want you to take a look at tonight is on the left, you see what did the text mean to the original audience? That's the, that's the question we want to wrestle with right now, tonight. So what did the text mean to the original audience? And we've got to do uh, a good job of trying to get at that. Because then we can start to talk about what truth about God transcends culture and time. So that's what we would call the theological principle. What is true about God that's being revealed to us in that context that is still true no matter what context we're in? And so we'll talk more about this next week, but we'll, we'll say there's some differences and we've got to get over that river and, and, and get to our town. And the only way we can do that is through the principalizing bridge, recognizing theological principles. So that's something tonight that you should have in your mind, is that there are something called theological principles. And those are principles concerning the nature of God that are true in all times for all people. And you've got to look for those, because those are the things that you can start to say, I don't care what difference there's, there are between then and now, God is the same forever. So what was he telling those people about himself then? Because that's going to be the same stuff that's going to apply to us today, all right? But what we first have to ask is, what did it mean to the original audience? So I want to throw out a couple of scriptures here. We're going to wrestle with Philippians 1, 3 through 11 here in just a second. But for fun, we're going to start out with a couple of passages in Deuteronomy. So actually, uh, turn to Deuteronomy, and we're going to wrestle with those first two passages that are on the screen. So Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. We'll try to make sense of this. Deuteronomy 22, verse 8 says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. All right. Who wants to apply that? Where's the application? Good insurance. Okay. Isn't this one of those verses you read and you're like, what does that have to do with today? Like it, it, it almost seems completely irrelevant to us. It's, it's Old Testament. Not only that, it's Deuteronomy. You know, some interesting things going on there. It's the second giving of the law. A lot of the law doesn't really apply to us. A parapet. Oh, that's a great question. Yes. What's a parapet? You should know what a parapet is if you're going to build one, right? Do you, can you use it in a sentence, <laughs> right? Can you, can you show me a picture? What does it look like? A parapet is basically a balcony, all right? So it, it would be like a balcony that would go around the top of their house. Well, why? Why, why was that important? He says, because if someone falls off and they die, the blood guilt's going to be on your house. Well, what we've got to understand is what does this mean to the people who this was written to? Somebody in, back then would have read this and it would have meant something to them. When you read it, when I read it to you, you're like, this doesn't mean anything to me. I don't even know what a parapet is. So first, we have to say, I'm going to put myself in these people's shoes, and I'm going to imagine that God wrote this to me, right? Um, 
in light of all the cultural, historical things that were going on. So what would that have meant for them right then? So here's the deal. Many people slept on their roofs back then, right? And, and what would happen if you're sleeping? You could roll around. Uh, well, the idea is, is if you didn't have a parapet built on the roof of your house and someone's up there and they fall off, and that was, that was due to you neglecting to, to ensure their safety, you were the one responsible for it. So you say, okay, well, that's great, but what does that have to do with us? How in the world will we ever apply that? Well, the theological principle that we could, we could, we could find there is that, that God cares about life so much that he's actually saying, take, take care to ensure the safety of your fellow men and women. Do what you can to keep them from being harmed. So you can apply that to today, right? So probably, if you can help it, um, it's, it's, it's good for us to look, and wait, look for ways in which we can mitigate people's risk. I'm not going to ask someone to come do something dangerous at my house uh, and knowing that they're probably going to get hurt doing it. That would be irresponsible of me. It would be irresponsible of me to drive down the highway doing 150 miles an hour just to see what my car can do. If I kill somebody, I think God's going to hold me responsible for that right? So it's that idea that the theological principle is that God cares about human life, and we can't just be careless. We need to take measures to care for humans as well, right? So there would be an, uh, there would be an application there that we could bridge there. Why? The theological principle is God cares about people. Does he still care about them? Yes. Does he still hold us responsible if we're careless and people get hurt? Like, yes. Now, that's a lot to pull out of one sentence, there's a lot of different places you can go. I'm not saying I have this here exhausted, but that would be one thing that I would start to say, okay, what was going on? What did it mean to them in their own town? Now, just go over just a little bit, and we're actually going to take a look real quick at 23, 7, and 8. So Deuteronomy 23, 7, and 8. He says, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. I'm not going to unpack this, uh, but this is an interesting thing to look at. Well, who are the Edomites, right? Well, yes, but it says that they were his, that your brother, for he is your brother. So you got Jacob and Esau, right? You got this, you got this interesting thing going on here. And then also says, not abhor the Egyptian because you were a sojourner in his land. Do you see that? It's like God is saying, even though you were enslaved in Egypt, you, weren't, you were a guest there. And you flourished while you were there. And remember, they left with a lot of their stuff, didn't they? And it's just this way of, don't think you're better than anybody else. Don't, even though there was this interesting thing that happened, you were a sojourner in his land. You lived somewhere else for a while. You ate off someone else's table for a while. And it causes deep humility. And this is what he's saying to these people. Do not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. That whole Jacob Esau thing that was going on. And, and, and luckily we do see in, in Scripture, um, there was some reconciliation that happened, yet they still would battle later on, right? There's still some interesting things that happen. But here with the Egyptian, he's, he's like a children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. Wow. Go, go look into that. Go research that, because there's some beautiful stuff 
that's, that's, that's hiding under there, all right? But what we want to do real quick is turn to Philippians 1, 3 through 11, and we're going to dive into this just a little bit. We are, just to recap, working on step three, which is taking a look at the immediate context. We want to do a good job of getting down into the weeds in the immediate context. So I have it up on the screen for you, uh, Philippians. And I want you just to read that passage really quickly. I'll, I'll be quiet for just a minute and read that passage and we'll talk about it. I'm looking around and I see some heads still down and that's okay. Many heads are up and so we're going to continue on for the sake of time. Uh, Philippians, step two would have been to dive into the general context, right? Which would have included take, taking a look at the genre. Uh, we would have wanted to know who wrote this. We would want to put this text in its right context, meaning look what's before it and what's after it. What's interesting is that we started in verse 3, didn't we? So what should we do? <laughs> Let's go back up to verse 1, right? That would be a pretty good idea to put this thing in context. Uh, because some of the clues that we're going to look for are in verses 1 and 2. And, and you'll see that here in just a second. But what we want to do is we want to take a look at this. So the genre, Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul, belongs to the genre of epistle. It's a letter, correct? Uh, this means that the interpretation will consider the fact that this passage would have been read in public and was intended for application and practice by the church in Philippi and more generally the body of Christ universally. All right, so this was, this was my attempt to write something about the genre and the meaning of the genre. That would be one of the first things that I want to look at when I'm taking a look at this passage, right? So, but then also, I want to understand the initial uh, or intrinsic conception, right? That's that thing we talked about last week. What's the big idea? Where does it belong here in this, in this passage? So the intrinsic concept begins in verse 1, as Paul addresses his letter to the saints in Philippi, and ends in verse 11, as Paul focuses on expressing his thankfulness for the partnership of the Philippians and his prayer that they would continue in maturity in the faith until Christ comes again. So that's, and that's pretty clear by your uh, groupings that your Bible probably already cut these paragraphs up into groups. You got a heading here that says, mine says, Thanksgiving in prayer. Do you see that that goes all the way through 11 and then verse 12 has a new heading? Most of your Bibles probably has that. Is there anybody who doesn't have a new heading in verse 12? Raise your hand. Okay, so if, uh, Carmichael, what do you, real quickly, what do you have if you don't have a new heading at 12? What it, where, does the, where, does, where does it just keeps going on until what? It goes, goes all the way until chapter 2? What translation do you have? Okay, all right, that's interesting. Most of us would have that heading, though, at 12. And I believe that that's a good grouping for that intrinsic conception, that, that, that big concept that this is belonging to, because he kind of changes gears a little bit in 12. Now, all of it's flowing together in a, in a way, but really, I would say that the beginning of this is verse 1, because 3 doesn't really, yes, conceptually it's okay, but there's some critical clues that we need in one. So I would say back up a little bit, and that's where I push on that um, heading that starts at three. I think it's a good logical heading, 
but I would say I think it needs to start a little bit earlier if I'm really going to put this thing in that general context, step two type of idea. All right, so let's continue on. So observations. Well, first off, historically, this is a little paragraph that I wrote for the historical observation here, and this is the value of having a study Bible. Uh, this is the, my big old study Bible, and it, in the beginning of every book of the Bible, it has all sorts of historical background for you, and I know many of your study Bibles will do the same thing. That is very, very good. And this is a little blurb that I got uh, just thinking through it and wrestling through that. So I said, I'll read it for you. From a historical perspective, it's worth noting that the letter to the Philippians was written by Paul from prison, and it was written in part to thank the Philippians for their financial support that Paul had received from, the, from Epaphroditus, uh, who was also a member of the church in Philippi. The church in Philippi was the first church that Paul started in Europe, and Philippi was also where Lydia was converted after hearing Paul preach the word and would become part of the church established there in Philippi as seen in Acts 16. When Paul mentions that they were partners in the gospel from the first day until now, he must have been considering these historical facts about the church in Philippi. Now when you read that, if you've got that historical idea, you've got that picture, now when you read that, when he says that we've been partners since the beginning, that means something, doesn't it? Because now you're thinking about, well, they have a special place in Paul's heart. They have a special relationship with Paul. They have history with Paul. And so that historical observation is important for us to get to a good interpretation. But also culturally, uh, the church in Philippi was made up of Gentile converts. Philippi was a Roman colony that would have been heavily influenced by Roman culture. This included the worship of the many Roman gods, the influence of the Latin language, as well as Roman entertainment, such as the theater. There was also much in the way of Roman culture in the forums, shops, and tax exemption status that attracted Roman military veterans to settle there. So this would have been a lot of people here who would have served in the Roman army. And now if you were ex-military, you get these tax breaks, you're going to go live there, right? It's kind of like Florida. You don't have to pay taxes. In, that's not true. But I don't know why people re retire in Florida other than the beautiful weather, maybe. But think about that. That's, that's the historical and cultural context that this church would have been living in. So when, you know, think of their ministry. I don't know what kind of ministry programs they would have had, but it likely would have been, hey, we're thinking about these people who are around us. And surely it would have included these Romans. Why? Because that's who these people were. This is the town that they were doing, they were doing ministry in. So there's some cultural observations. Uh, then literary, right? There's a lot here. The first observation is that the passage is an epistle and was meant to be read by church for encouragement and instruction. The flow of the passage is informal and personal, filled with Paul's personal expressions of love. You see that. He says thankfulness, right? An intentionally yet hopeful prayer towards and for the Philippians. There was a continuation of this theme of prayer beginning in verse 3 when Paul notes that in every prayer he thanks God for them. And it continues in verse 9 when Paul expresses his prayer for them that they would continue to grow in their love, knowledge, and discernment. There is also a visible instrumentation uh, seen in the instrumental relationship between the work of God and their partnership in the gospel work with Paul and the continued spiritual growth as God will continue the work he began and will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. There's, there's this beautiful thing that's going on here. So literally, there's a lot of different stuff that we don't have time to unpack there, uh, but take, take note of that as well. But then from uh, another uh, side of it, look at this uh, grammatical section. This is where we're going to spend more of our time tonight. 
So I wrote this. Paul uses several nouns at the beginning of the letter, starting by naming himself and Timothy while identifying as servants of Christ. Do you see that pronoun I in you? When you look at your scripture, verse 3, it says, I thank God in all my remembrance of you. Who's I and who's you? You, ha- you have to go back up to, verses one, uh, to verse 1 to get that. Paul and Timothy, so we would take it Paul's the one who's saying I, and then two, all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So this is the church in Philippi. So when we're looking at the grammatical stuff, we've got to look at this, right? But then also the words always and every, those are, those are things that come up. Uh, and then there's this may in verse 9 that implies a future attainment of the subject of Paul's prayer for the Philippians, namely love, knowledge, and discernment, leading to their future ability to prove what is excellent. And Paul is confident, as, we see in verse, uh, as you see in verse 6, where he says he is sure So these are the things that we want to look for when we're looking at the grammatical things that are in the text that help us understand what is being communicated. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to practice. At your table, we're going to look at the sheets that you have. So get your sheets ready that have the little colors at the bottom of them. It should have 1 John 1, 1 through 4. And we're going to spend some time digging into the grammatical observations this evening. We're going to spend about 10 minutes doing these things. If you have a yellow highlighter at your table, we may have to share them because I didn't have enough of them for every table to have multiples of every color. Some of you do, and that's okay. So the first thing that you're going to look for is you're going to highlight all the verbs. Now, you've got a key down there at the bottom. I know some of us, it's been a minute since we've been in school, so we're like, what's a verb, right? Verb's an action word. Uh, then we want to highlight nouns. Those are people, right, places, things, those kinds of things. Those are going to be blue. And then pronouns are going to be either pink or purple, depending on which color marker you have. And as we saw just a second ago, a pronoun is a substitute for a noun. When it says I or you, uh, that's a pronoun. Those are the things that will be highlighted purple. And then look for repeated words or phrases. Uh, And you can underline those. uh, And then you can see on your sheet, I've got some things circled. Uh, There's pens on the back of every chair. If you can get get that out, you need that. that. That's available for you. But work together as a group to make those grammatical observations, highlighting those colors, drawing lines, all that good stuff uh, as you need to, identifying important relationships, repeated words, phrases, all that good stuff. So I'm I'm going to let you spend a few minutes doing that. Up on the screen is a preview of basically what you should have at the end of it. I will, just so you know what you're looking for. We don't have to get too, too technical. I'll ask Jonathan and Mike Roark to wander around and help any tables that that may have some questions. They are seminary students. They've graduated from hermeneutics already, so they'll be walking around if anyone needs any help just to 
take a look over your shoulder, so don't get scared when they come by. All right, let's, uh, let's work through this together a little bit. <laughs> yes, the prerequisite was uh, English 101 for this class. I know it's difficult to, to remember what all is what, you know, and I totally sympathize with you. It, it's, uh, it's not something that we work with every day. It's not something we think about, um, but it's helpful to start to try to break it down. Um, and hopefully that'll become clear why this exercise is important here in just a second. So this was our text, right? You have it in front of you. This was without anything marked up on it. Uh, and then this is what it looks like when we actually do some of what we were trying to do just now, all right? So uh, I don't, I'm not claiming to have hit everything that you could hit. There's a lot that's going on here, but I want you to look at your paper and then look at this, and at least you should have most of this. If you don't, that's okay. Um, I can put this up at the end, and you can, you can uh, hit a couple more that you see. But let's start from the top, and let's, let's go and work through this a little bit. So that which, so which is underlined because it's a repeated word, and I didn't know that when, it, when you first read it, you don't know that that's going to be a repeated word, you just, you just keep going. But then you see which, 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 it's all over the place. So what's another interesting grammatical observation is where is the first period? Where's the first period? Jesus Christ. Isn't that funny? You don't see a period until after his son, Jesus Christ. So there's some comma abuse in there, isn't there? And that's okay. But, but take a look at those types of things. So what that means is that this is a continuous thought. He's, 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 he's building all these clauses and relationships. And he's not done with his thought until he puts that period there. And then he has and. And we are writing these things so that our joy, so on and so forth. Okay, so let's go back up. So that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Uh, now that, and I, and I think a couple of people out there said, what do we do with that? And that's a good question because that in this sense, I think is referring to Christ. Um, but it's, but it's, an interesting, it's an interesting thing to wrestle through. So I think it's perfectly fine if you would have colored that as a pronoun because I think in this case, that could 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 be a pronoun referring back to Christ or the word, right? So if you, if, if you want to put that one up there, that's one that I didn't get the first time around, and I think that that's a, a, a great observation to make. So we, pronoun we, who's we? Well, who's, 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 who's writing this, right? And this one right here. So John is writing this, but he's also saying, he's about to go into this argument that this is an eyewitness account he says, that which we have heard, we have seen with our own eyes, looked upon, touched. Do you see all of those? You can't do all of those things unless you're an eyewitness to Jesus Christ. So, so when you slow down and start to make these relationships, now it starts to become a little bit more clear. So this is where I would say, okay, when I start looking at these, I'm going to draw lines to seen, looked, heard, seen. Do you see that? To me, that was something that started to pop out, and that's why I started to connect those. And then I asked myself, what types of people can do this? Eyewitnesses. Those who walked with Christ. 
are the ones who are qualified. So John's initial argument is he says, everything that I'm going to tell you, let me qualify by saying, I saw it first. I heard. I touched. I looked. Do you get that? That's a whole, there's a whole sermon right there. So, keep going. We have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. So that word of life is Christ as well. The life was made manifest. Life is a repeated word. Made manifest is a repeated word. And I think it made manifest is also an important relationship. We'll see that here in just a second. We have seen and testify. Now I've got three arrows coming off of testify because I think it's related to proclaiming. And proclaim is going to be a repeated word. Uh, and then writing. Part of what he's doing in writing is testifying to this, isn't it? And he says, and we are writing these things so that our joy might be complete. So this part of, part of testify is a testimony, and it's a first-hand eyewitness account, his testimony. And he's writing that testimony as well. So that which we have seen and heard and proclaim. All right, so now verb, the verb here, proclaim, has a purpose. Also to you, so that's his audience, so that you, too, may have fellowship. And that's a verb, to have fellowship. So he's testifying, he's proclaim, proclaiming with purpose. The end goal of his testifying, his proclaiming, is that everyone else can have what he has. Because it says two, so that you, too, two is pretty important, right? Yeah. May have fellowship with us. Who's us? Well, all those who currently already have fellowship with Christ, namely John and the rest of the apostles and everyone else who's believed in Christ up until this point. We can't really go line by line and say who all that is, but at a minimum, it's John and the other apostles, those who saw, heard, touched, right? They qualify for that. So, if you listen to his words, this is something that you can have. You can have fellowship with them. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. His is referring to the Father. That's the pronoun. Because instead of saying Father again, he's, he's going to use his, but that his refers back to the Father. Whose Son? It's the Father's Son. Who is the Son? Jesus Christ. So he builds this argument and says that our, those who have seen, heard, touched, those who are proclaiming, they're the ones who have fellowship. But it's not just a generic fellowship. He says we have fellowship with people, beings. Not people in a human sense, but, but with individuals. Now that complicates things even more because it's a trinity, right? But we won't get into that tonight. There is the person of the Father. There is the person of the Son. There is the person of the Holy Spirit. So he has fellowship with the Father and with Christ. And so he says, and we are writing these things so that our joy might be complete. So it's such an interesting thing when we start to really dig down and drill into 
um, the text like this. Now, I don't recommend that this is every time you come to the Bible that you're going to have to do this big old formal exercise. That's not the point. But if you come to a passage that maybe you've got to teach on or a passage that you really want to understand well and you want to slow down and make observations, this is an incredible tool to do that. And you actually will start to train yourself that you won't need to color things and draw arrows and all that. You'll start to see them. And that's what I believe separates someone who's um, good at exposition and someone who's more amateur in it is, is that you won't see those connections as clearly or as quickly. But with practice and, and, and effort, you'll start to see those relationships. And I tell you that the best preachers are those who can make those relationships be clear and you expound on those relationships. You expound on those observations. Have you, have you ever uh, sat under preaching um, where you're like, I don't see any of this in the text that we're working through right now? I mean, just quick raise a hand. We won't name the preacher's name, but have you ever sat under teaching like that before? I've probably done, I've probably, I've done, let me just clarify, I've done teaching like that. And you look at your Bible and you say, there's a disconnect. Whatever you're saying has nothing to do with what this is saying. And that's not to say that there isn't room for topical preaching. That can be uh, uh, of benefit, absolutely. But the way that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit has chosen to feed the sheep is through the written word of God. So what our job is, is to understand the word of God. And what the preacher and teacher's job is, is to expound the word of God to feed the flock who desperately need to eat on the word of God. So a good preacher will start with the word of God, stay in the word of God, and end with the word of God. That doesn't mean that you can't put personal context to it. doesn't mean that you can't give analogies and examples um, and build word uh, images. Uh, th there's nothing wrong with any of that, and that's absolutely part of what we should do. But when we come to the word and we, uh, and we recognize relationships and we recognize themes, when we recognize um, big ideas, that's what we're supposed to expound. That's what we're supposed to augment. That's what we're supposed to make clear. And that is the beauty of good Bible exposition. So before I move on, does anybody have any questions or comments on this? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so there, this, I think, I think you could go either way on that. Fellowship generally would be something that, I think it is something that you do, but I think it can be a noun too. But I would go, if I had to pick between them, I would, I would say that it's more of a verb, if anything else. So, and I definitely think so with the have fellowship, that's something you do. And anyone, anyone can expound on that. You know, this is my interpretation, this is my exercise, and I don't claim to be a grammatical expert. Um, but that, that would be uh, what I would say, when in doubt with that, I would treat it more as a verb than not a verb. But definitely when it has have fellowship, it's clearly going to be a verb. That's something that they possess. It's something they're doing. They're fellowshipping with, right? So we, we, we go to a fellowship. <laughs> we fellowship. That's, a, that's an action, right? Anybody else have any other questions or comments?
Okay, she says that fellowship is both a noun and a verb, and that's why I did blue and yellow. Anybody else have any other questions or comments on this step? So this is, the per this is the point of getting deep down into the weeds of the immediate context. You can't do this well if your context is large. It's, it's going to be an interesting thing. Now, maybe start building them together, and then you can do a whole book. I think that that's perfectly fine. But to do this well, I think starting out is get a specific passage that you want to dive deep into. And the first step is to say, where, where's the intrinsic idea? Where does this idea begin, and where does this idea end? Big picture. Those are your borders. Then dive into that section to start to make these grammatical observations, these literary observations to start to uh, dig in just a little bit further, right? Paying attention to our nouns, verbs, pronouns, repeated words, important relationships, all that good stuff. So what we'll do now is we'll take a look at this passage we just read together, and I started it, I didn't finish it, but this is kind of what I would start to do with the Philippians passage, right? I thank my God, so we start off with the purple, right? The pronouns, all that good stuff. I thank my God. Well, who? Who's writing this? The pronoun I refers to Paul. So Paul is writing this. I thank, thanking a verb is a verb, my God, and all my remembrance, remembrance is a verb, of you always in every prayer, right? And like I said, I did not get all of them in this. This was just a very quick, how would I start? How would I start to make, make observations here? But you start to see what, what's, what it what can um, start to do for us, and we start to look at these types of relationships, repeated words. We start to see these types of things. And so um, I would recommend taking Philippians 1, 3 through 11, it, it, that could be your homework this week. Actually, your homework is to do it to any passage you want to, but maybe since we've already started reading this one, this one would be a good one to, to finish out as part of your homework. Now, I know this is incredibly small. It's on the back of your handout as well, but these are some of the structural and literary relationships within a biblical book. You're going to need your magnifying glass, so forgive me. Uh, but there's some of these different things that are important to look at, and I'm just going to go through a couple of them real quick. So comparison, contrast, repetition, continuity, right? Uh, climax. Uh, there's all of these different things that you can start to see, explanation and analysis. One of the, one of the beautiful things when you come to a text and you start to see uh, that there's contrasts, um, you, you stop, stop and say, okay, what's, what's being emphasized here? And in 1 John, when you looked at it and when you book charted it, what was, what was a big contrasting theme all throughout? Can anyone throw out what was the contrast? Yeah. Light and darkness was a contrasting theme all throughout. What was another contrasting theme? Yes, okay, so God and, and, and false teachers, Antichrist, so that stuff. Anyone else? Truth and light, very good. Uh, go, was that? Love and hate. Oh, that one's a big one, isn't it? What's another one? Yes, truth and lies. What else? Life and death. Okay, what else? Do what? 
Oh, yes, long lawlessness, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obedience, disobedience. There's, there's, there's so many of them. That could, that could be an exercise in and of itself, just looking at all the contrasts that verse John goes through, all right? Climax, climax is a kind of a thing that usually happens in a narrative, right? The, the story's building, the story's building, and then this great thing happens, all right? Imperatives, have you ever heard of an, an imperative? That, those are those ideas where it's saying, um, I beseech thee, right? I command thee, I encourage thee, like I implore thee. That's an imperative. One of, the, one of the most beautiful things that you can do is to teach yourself to pay attention to imperatives. Because when the scripture gives an imperative, that is like non-negotiable stuff. There may be other things that you can look at and say, okay, we can wrestle with that a little bit. But then when there's an imperative, that's the stuff that you say, all right, I've really got to take this seriously. All right? So there's some other things uh, in the list, right? Harmony. Right there's 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 uh, harmony that you can you can see and that's a lot of uh, we see in the poetry. Uh, there's generalizations. There's all sorts of different things that we can start to look at. But also like when we look at the idea of um, uh, analysis and clauses, that's another thing to pay attention to. The word if if is a is a clause conditional kind of word. When you see if show up, that's a good time to slow down and start to say, all right, what's, what's this argument here that they're building, right? And First John said that a lot, didn't he? He says, if you do this, if you say this, those are clauses. Those are conditional statements. Yeah, that's the old, the, the therefore, that's, a, that's a definitely uh, something to always consider. Um, does anybody ha- else have any other examples that they, that they like to think of when they're looking at uh, things like this, structure and literary relationships within biblical books or biblical passages? When you're reading it, is there anything that to you that you just uh, are very conditioned to see clearly and just really stop and take note of? Does anybody have anything like that? Do what? Abide. Abide. Okay, so anywhere in the scriptures where you see that kind of a theme, that's, that's a catch for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Purpose statement. Okay, what are you thinking? Yes. Mm-hmm. Paul said purpose statements, and, he, and, he's, and he's talking about uh, where he says, and I have written these things, so that you may know, right? This, this, this beautiful thing. So you too may have fellowship with us, indeed, with the Father and Son, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There's another purpose statement, right? Uh, the Gospel of John, at the end of it, he says why he wrote it, right? There's a lot of other things, but these are the things that we wrote. So what? That you might believe. So great point, purpose statements. Um, anybody else? Have any other, anything else? Yes, Princely. That's interesting. Okay. Uh, where is that? What number is that? 24. <laughs> oh, those ABBA relationships. <laughs> like black, white, white, black. Uh, usually that's like in, uh, in poetry and stuff. You'll, you'll have these, um, these patterns that you'll, you'll pick up on. I don't typically stop and pay too much attention to those. Not at this point in my life. Maybe that's phase two where, I, where I'll really start to pay attention to those. 
<laughs> Great one, though, Bruce. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so let's recap here. Um, and then, uh, actually, I don't know how we're finishing tonight. I think Chris left. Well, yeah, I don't think, uh, we'll pray and get out of here uh, in a second. I'm just making sure he's not in here, because if he is, then I'll turn it over to him, but I don't see him. So let's recap real quick. So make historical observations. What did it mean to them? We want to take a look at theological principles and then really get into the flow of thought, repeated words, nouns, verbs, imperatives, all of that stuff that lives in that idea of the literary context. And this is important when we remind ourselves that the author determines meaning. The author is the one who controls meaning. It's our job to interpret the meaning. It's our job to find the meaning. And so what we will do next week is we will actually do interpretation. We'll, we will produce interpretations of texts. Uh, and that will be, it will be a challenge for us. Um, just, I won't tell you what text because I don't want you getting ahead. We're going to work on it together and it will be a challenge. But our goal will be to produce a one-sentence interpretation of the passage that we're going to look at. But I want you to keep this in mind. How many commas did we see with Paul? So we can have some comma abuse, but our objective will be to produce a one-sentence interpretation of the text that we look at, all right? So word diagramming, underlining, colors, all that good stuff. Your homework is practice step three on a selected passage of Scripture. It doesn't matter what you do. I will tell you that this week that you just finished is the hardest week that there is in this whole thing. If you actually did the book charting of 1 John, that was very difficult, and that is the, that's the hump you're already over. Choose whatever passage you want to, and then start to do what we did tonight with the passage we had in front of us, taking a look at those verbs, pronouns, nouns, all of that. I don't care what you do. Um, I don't care how you do it, but bring it, if you can, next week, and let's take a look. Let's share those ideas. And if you want to work together this week on it, if some of you have some time to get together and think through it, I highly encourage that as well. So pick whatever passage you want to and do that exercise as well, all right? So next week, we're going to get into meditation and interpretation as well as cram in application in it because that's what we've got to do in one week, all right? So we're going to spend some time on those. Uh, so with that, let us close, and I will dismiss you. I thank you, Father, for your, for your word, as we are, as we are ever, ever grateful that you would reveal yourself to us through your scriptures. And Father, may, may we believe that the word is truly your revel revelation to us. May we actually believe that. And may we read it as such. May we submit to its authority as such. And Father, I pray that the things that we've learned tonight, that some of it's difficult and some of it's new, God, I pray that it'll be of some benefit that we might be able to interact with your word in a more clear way so that we can rightly divide the word, that we can understand what you meant to communicate to us, that we would understand that your word truly is the rule for our faith and practice. So, Father, I pray for every person in this room who's diligently made it through week three in our study together. Father, I, I pray that you bless them. I'm proud of them for working hard, Father, not at something that is worthless, but at something that is absolutely critical to their faith 
And that's your word, interacting with your word, loving, believing, and obeying your word. Father, I pray that as we go from here tonight that you give us safety, and as we go through the rest of this week, that each of us will be in your word looking to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys. You're dismissed.